I want to relive this story in front of you parents to let you know that your kid can be a complete mess up like me and still be a pastor later on. But Miss Timothy's English class was a hard class. Uh, Miss Timothy's English class was, was a difficult class. And not only did she have regular assignments, but through the year we were supposed to keep a daily journal. That meant daily you were supposed to write something. And it couldn't just be your thoughts in the day. It needed to be in a form. It either, either needed to be a short story, prose, poem, or a song. And so as like most students, I got great and I did good. And then all of a sudden I'd have an English project that took away from that and you know some big science test. And the next thing you know... I looked up, and it was getting close to the end of the semester, and I had 40 days worth of journal entries that I had not yet done. So I started getting a little bit frantic, and I started just kind of like writing down random songs, and I'm a songwriter, so I'm writing down songs. And then it's, it's the night of, and I still have like 25 more to go that day till the next day. And at this point, I'm desperate, and I'm looking around my room, and I'm not proud of this, but I reached over into where all my heavy metal cassette tapes were. And if you open them up, what do they have inside? The lyrics to the songs. And the little devil on my shoulder was like, go ahead, she'll never know. So it happened to be that they were a Russian band. We're not even going to go into all that stuff. So at this point, I don't care. It's midnight. I've got several, several more to do. And so I just begin to copy these lyrics down. And I'm copying them down, copying them down. I don't even look at what they're saying. I'm just copying, 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 copying. And it's two in the morning. I'm still copying. I'm following my dad's like, you got to turn off the light. So turn on the light. Last, copy down the last lyric from the song, put it in there. Worst plagiarism in my entire life. Just turn it in. And then of course, you know how school is. You go to bed at two and you got to get up at six, you know, so four hours of sleep. And I take it and I run and I go put it on her desk. And about two weeks later, I get it back. It's great grade on it. It was like like a 95 or something. And I was like, all right, this is awesome. But then I opened it up. And she's got all these things where she circled this one thing. Oh, my. This is her comments. Dot, dot. Does this mean what I think it means? And I'm going, what did I mean? And then I realized I'd written down all these sketchy things in here and passed them off as my own. And she's probably thinking, I have the next axe murderer in my class. Probably need to pass this on to the, uh, you know, Homeland Security people and let them know what's going on. But my words did not match my character, right? What I put out as my word did not match who I was. But when we get to John 1, we talk about the word that became flesh. And what we're saying is not just God's presence in Christ, but the very essence of God himself is Christ, He is Christ. And only God can reveal God. So it's kind of a little bit of a duh statement. But what John is saying is John is saying God came down to reveal God. And he did it through Jesus Christ. He did it through Jesus Christ. And so the one thing that I love about John, just by way of here we are in the part of the um, Apostles' Creed, where we're talking about the only begotten Son, our Lord. So we're going to save Lord for next week, but the only begotten Son is where we are. And John is beautiful to me because when you look at Matthew and you look at Luke, you see the the narrative of the birth and the wise men and the shepherds. They're the things that are going on historically. But John is pulling back the curtain so you can see what's going on spiritually and theologically and doctrinally in the world. What is going on? What's the spiritual ramification of God's incarnation through Jesus Christ? So we look at the text. If you've got your, te- got your Bible, turn and we'll look at these and we'll kind of go verse by verse and then I'll turn it over to Bob for some application. 
When we look at verses 1 and 2, the word there is in the beginning the word, and the word actually is logos. You've heard this before, but it refers back to Genesis 1. And so it's not that, it's, not that Jesus is just God's eternal presence, but within Jesus, within the logos, the word of God, is the absolute fullness of God's character. The complete essence of God is found in Jesus Christ. And so again in verse 3, when we refer back again, you, if, if you were listening to this, and especially if you were a Jewish person, you would understand, you would get the cadence of this, just like in the beginning God spoke. Well, this is in the beginning was the Word of God. He was God. He was eternal, co-eternal with God. He was with God in the beginning. He's, he's kind of saying, don't miss this. Everything that was created was created through him. And so in verse 3, he, John is reminding us, Jesus is also, by the very essence of God, the creative Word of God. And so Genesis 1 is drawing you that he's the eternal. There's not some moment where Jesus was not. And also he is the creative word of God. And so this kind of is, this, this should revolutionize the way that we speak. Because however, how many times have you ever used the phrase, well, the God of the Old Testament, but now the God of the New Testament. Don't we say things like that? That's false. There never has been a time where Jesus wasn't. So if ever you hear someone that say, well, you know, Jesus never said that, they do not understand the Trinity. Because Jesus has always been there. So whatever you hear God the Father saying, and we would say the God of the Old Testament, that's Jesus. He's right there. He's eternal with God. And so it also helps us understand there's not been this time where like God was all judgy and upset about everything, and all of a sudden he was kind and compassionate in Christ. God from cover to cover has been Jesus, and Jesus from cover to cover has been God. He is eternal, co-eternal with God. So in verses 4 and 5, begin to give you these other places and topics that you see a lot of in John. And those are two words, light and life. You know, we see this when he's in John 4 with the woman at the well. I would give you a, the living water that would come up, or I am the light of the world, and it, this, these things that he would say. But those two words are going to occur 36 times in John alone. And we know this because light brings life, light directs the path. And then he talks about darkness, and he says, darkness, it has not understood it. It has not grasped it. And, and really this also refers to the whole point of he was one of them, but they didn't understand him. Even though they saw him, that there were so, that didn't understand who he was and rejected him. So when we get verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, we get and introduce the prophet that is coming forward. And this is John the Baptist. So verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 are about John the Baptist. And they, John the Baptist is foreshadowed in the books of both Isaiah. And that's Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, and Malachi, verse 3, Malachi 3, 1. And he was the one that was sent before Jesus to make straight the way from him, a voice calling in the wilderness. And we know that John did go out into the wilderness. He wore crazy cloaks. He baptized people. He told people to repent for the kingdom of God was coming. And then, of course, what happens when Jesus comes up on the scene? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. And so this is about, this is John trying to also show you, this Jesus didn't just pop up on the scene. This is absolutely tied into things that were prophesied, not just about Jesus. Jesus coming, but about one who would come and prophesy that Jesus would come. And so you see the, the beautiful of all of the details that John wants you to grasp. All of these things come together in the completeness of the story of Christ's coming. And verses 10 and 11 are a little bit sobering, though. Verses 10 and 11 are a little bit sobering. His own people, the very people that he created, 
The very people who built a temple in his name, the very people who have his word and know it, those people, they were content to just have the temple and they were content to just have the word. And when the one who represented the temple, when the one who represented the word, when the one who created the world showed up, they rejected him. They did not want him. They could not handle the real thing. And guys, this is, this is absolutely a, a place in this text where we also have to kind of stand and look at each other and go, are we satisfied with many of the Christian copies of the things that point to God, but what about God's absolute presence himself? Because God's absolute presence himself in Christ offended people. You know, we're kind of like, we're okay with copies. We're okay with going through the motions. We don't necessarily want the president to show up. We don't want the king to show up. And then verse 12 Verse 12 is this beautiful part that reminds us again and it brings us back to grace. And verse 12 reminds us simply this. By faith in Jesus Christ, through that, Christ is able to change a person from a mere being or a creation into a child of God. In a royal act, he gives them the right to become children of God. Then when we get to verse 13. Verse 13, we're going to see so quickly in John 3 3. And verse 13, we're going to see so quickly in John 3 3, where he says to Nicodemus, You cannot enter God's kingdom as you are, but instead you must be born again. And so he talks about this right here in John 1 13, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and we know that the law cannot make us righteous. We don't come through the law. However, because we have to be born again, we come through Jesus Christ. And so you can literally imagine this. That is not we don't go through the law as being a person that can handle the law and fulfill the law. We don't do that. Instead, we must be made new, born again into Christ's kingdom through the one, he, who fulfilled the law. And so we take on his nature. And then verse 14. Verse 14 in this, in verse 14 as we read it, it says, So the word became flesh or became human and lived here among us. Now, this does not mean that he was born somehow like he was the first son of God. This is, where, this is where both Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons go off track. And you can immediately tell and stop a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon in their tracks. All of a sudden, by the way, as well, these things seem new. They go all the way back to some of the first few centuries with an ancient heresy called Arianism, which meant that Jesus was a created being. But this text throughout tells you, no, he's not. He's begotten by God, but he was always here. He's always eternal. He's always been God. The Logos, who was always there, became incarnate. God became with flesh on. The fullness of God and the completeness of God walked around. He didn't just become born here, just as, as Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons would say. That's heresy. And then we get to verses, the second half of verse 14. For, the second 14 point B, and then verse 15. They get, then you get, this is also then John's community of people, and they begin to tell you, hey, hey, listen, what we have to say. Verses 14 and a half and 15 say, we are testifying not about a theory that we have, but we are testifying about what we have seen, what we have witnessed. We were there when the Old Testament prophecy was met with revealed reality. And so this is a powerful part of the, we're not just giving you a theory. And if in theory we think if X is this and B is that, then A plus B is X and blah, blah. They're not telling you a theory. They're saying, listen, we have seen it. We saw when what was prophesied actually happened. And then verse 16, he reminds us again of this, the way that we have been dealt with. And so verse 16 says, we have been dealt with and God has dealt with us in truth and grace. Grace is that we didn't deserve this grace and grace that we don't deserve the truth. 
both truth and grace in this are both grace. And the truth is that grace saves us, and the truth is that Jesus is real, and that is also a grace. And so it is this grace upon grace upon grace. In, in contemporary, I'm going to take some time and just talk about how this whole idea of grace is not just some new thing. But God has continually given his people grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And now when Jesus gets on the scene, it should just be this wave of grace that you go, oh, grace, that we've been saved by grace. And then in verse 17, in verse 17, John is reminding us again that in Jesus Christ, grace and truth reach their fullness. And because of his sacrifice, grace and truth are available to us all. And then verse 18 is probably the place where Bob will, Bob will camp the most. But in verse 18 we get this word, only begotten. And that is best translated as the incomparable. Incomparable. Christ the incomparable. Christ the one who is in his own category. Christ the one to whom none can be compared to. Christ is in a category of his own. And then he says, and we have seen this incomparable fullness of God in Jesus Christ. You who come to Corinth on a regular basis are accustomed to the fact that our typical preaching style is what Pastor Paul just did and what I was hoping he would do this morning, which is sort of go through the text. Uh, and then we try to uh, offer some uh, explanation or application for that. <clears throat> but for the next few weeks, we're going to be doing something a little bit different, and that is to sort of start with what we believe, what's our theology, and then we're trying to find a text that fits that, which is a very dangerous thing to do. I hope we won't misuse the texts that are there. But inside your bulletin on the right-hand side, below all those announcements, you will find the Apostles' Creed. And we don't take time generally in the 830 service to affirm the Apostles' Creed. We will do it at least once or twice during this series of sermons, but not today. But, uh, so at the beginning of the year, we took the first paragraph, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So the first three sermons of the year focused there. From now to Easter, we're going to be on the second paragraph, which is the longest paragraph of the Apostles' Creed. And it starts, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, and let's pause right there. So uh, that's as far as we're going to go today. Our Lord is going to be for next week and the rest of it all the way up through Easter and a week beyond that. So I want to, I want to <clears throat> ponder uh, the, uh, the meanings of those words, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. What is it exactly that we're saying when we affirm those words? So really, I'm going to focus on three um, descriptive titles, names of Jesus. Only begotten, and then Christ, and then Jesus. And I want you to ponder with me what exactly we mean when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. Let me begin with that uh, phrase, his only begotten. So this is a word that we don't use very much in our culture. You don't go around saying, I be, I've been begotten, right? Or I begat a child. That's actually King James uh, language. And in fact, most of your Bibles, probably the ones that you read, don't use the word begotten. The only reason that this is in our vocabulary is because of the Apostles' Creed, which has this phrase, and because of the King James Version of the Bible, and particularly John 3.16. Most people know, it sounds familiar, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
So what exactly does that mean? Uh, The word begat or begot or begotten refers to the father's role generally in in producing a child. So the father's role in reproduction. The Bible never says that Mary begat Jesus. Mary uh, bore Jesus, nor does it say that Joseph begat Jesus. But it uses begat or begotten rather frequently in genealogies to refer to one father producing a child. The idea behind the word begat or begotten at first uh, and maybe most commonly uh, refers to uh, producing a child, but what's behind it is that when you produce a child, you're producing the the same thing as you are. You are taking some of yourself, and even though it's the mother who carried the child, some of the father is in there, so therefore he begat that child. It's, it's a word that has to do with kind or category of things. So if you remember your high school biology, uh, the word genus, is one, G, G-E-N-U-S, is related to this word in Greek, and it means it's a certain class of plants or animals. It's a category of things. So when I father Philip and Kara and Jenny, I'm producing the same category of things as I am. I can't produce something other than that because that's who I am. So uh, again, most often in the Bible, you, you'll find this word begot, but there's a compound word, monogenes, that is what we're talking about here. And when you have mono, you, that sounds familiar, right? Only or one or unique. Then you have the only begotten son. And this is, again, where uh, groups like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses have gone astray because they they see this word and they go like, see, Jesus was begotten of the Father. This word, when it's used this way, has nothing to do with birth or biological reproduction. What it has to do with is uniqueness. All right? This is the only one of a kind produced by the Father. All right, the only one of a kind who relates to the father that way. In fact, the word father in this verse does not have a definite article. Stay with me here a moment. I know I'm the grammar guy. I love grammar, and not all of you do. But literally, it's uh, that Jesus came into the world as if he is the only one of a father. So think about all the families that you know, and maybe some of you are one of them, who have an only child. Right now, my son and his wife have an only child. Their whole world revolves around everything to do with that one child. All of us who have multiple children, unless you had twins from the very beginning, know what it's like to have that one child. When we had one son and our lives were so consumed, I'll never forget this young couple, and we're going like, we got all this stuff, we're getting up at night, and they're going, you just need three or four more, and then it'll be all right, right? So... Uh, but when you have one child, and, and families that never have another child, whether by choice or because they can't have another child, their whole lives revolve around the focus of that one child. And so this word is actually used in the Gospel of Luke to refer to three different times when Jesus either healed or raised from the dead an only child, a monogenes. And the purpose of Luke bringing that into the story is so that you know when a child is sick and about to die or when a child dies, it's horrible no matter whose child it is, but when it's the only child, there's a level of passion and emotion that you can feel even if it's not your family. So Luke introduces that word there to say, think about what, it's, what it means to, be, to have an only child. When, 
when John wants to describe for us Jesus as the incomparable, this is the word that he uses. He says, I've already introduced to you in verses 10 and 11 that by faith you can become children of God. God has many children. You are one of them when you put your faith in Jesus. But you are not the same as the Father's one and only child. It is that uniqueness of Jesus that is on display here in John chapter 1. So that's the first thing that we say in the creed, that we believe that God has a unique relationship to Jesus, not a relationship of producing him or creating him, but a relationship that is an eternal relationship of father and his only son. That level of affection, that depth of bond, that relationship, that eternal, uh, that t- eternal connection between the father and the son is what we mean when we talk about, I believe in Jesus, the only begotten son of God. And then I want to focus a little bit on the word Christ. So this is a word that, um, there are certain words that begin specific and become generic. So for example, Band-Aid was a brand of a a plastic bandage, but now we use Band-Aid all the time to refer, because once it gets into common use, it becomes generic, or Jell-O right? Or Tylenol. So we use these words, they start out specific and they become general. I can only think of one word in the English language, and maybe you can think of others and help me out, that started out general and became a very specific focused word, and that's this word for Christ. Originally, it just meant, the verb just meant to rub something on, to spread something. So for example, you could creo uh, poison on your arrow before you shot it in battle. You rub the poison on the arrow. You could, you could rub oil, uh, you could rub cosmetics on your face. So anything that you just spread or rub is this, this, this verb in the Greek called creo. It came into use in a, in a more specific way with the Jewish people because they had two specific offices where oil was rubbed on the leader as a sign of their acceptance of the office and of the respect that people were to give to them from then on. And that would be their king and their high priest. So they would rub oil on that person, and that person became the anointed one. And when someone was the anointed one, they were conferred with all the authority and power of that office, but also you had to give respect to God's anointed one. So even David, when he has the opportunity to kill King Saul, who's been trying to kill him, will say, I will not touch the Lord's anointed one. There also came an expectation that someday there would come the anointed one that would, that would be the, the fulfillment of all of their longings and dreams. The anointed one, the Christ. And so in the New Testament, uh, this word is never future tense, It is always in past tense. This is the one who was the anointed one. And it actually develops to the point where it's not only a title, but even a name of Jesus. You say, is the word Christ part of his name? Yes and no. So here's a very general word that all it meant was, it could even be used in a a sort of disrespectful way. That guy's just got stuff rubbed all over him, right? Here's a word that's a very general word, and it becomes a word that actually means there's only been one, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, and he's already come, and we worship him as such. 
So this, this second word, Christ, is a powerful way, once again, of saying Jesus is incomparable. There's no other one like him. And I can't think of any other context today in which any world leader is called the Christ. Right? So we have a very general word that became a very specific one. When we talk about Christ, we're only talking about the only begotten of the Father and his relationship to his people. And then we come to the word Jesus as... Uh, the, the third of these three descriptions or names of Jesus. Now, for us white Protestants, it probably bothers us once in a while that we run into somebody named Jesus. I took a, a Subway catering order not long ago, and it was signed by Jesus. Of course, if you're Hispanic and Catholic, it's Jesus, but it is spelled exactly the same way. And we go like, why would anybody name their child Jesus? I mean, other than putting a rather high level of expectation on that child, why, you know, why would you do that? Well, in the Catholic and Hispanic tradition, it's very appropriate to take, to take someone that you revere deeply and love. So the word, uh, the name Maria, for example, or some of the other saints are used oftentimes. And, and from their perspective, like, I'm really honoring this child by naming him Jesus. The reason that is not inappropriate is because Jesus was actually a very common name in the time of Jesus. So you would think when God sends his angel to Joseph and Mary and says, I've got a special name to give your child, that he would give him something that nobody else would ever have thought of or used or whatever. So, uh, you know, he doesn't get, tell him it's Hezekiah or Zerubbabel or whatever, some other, you know, long name. It's like, I'm going to give you one of the most common names ever. And it's in part due because of what the name means. Yahweh saves or Jehovah saves. This is the Savior. I, you call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But it's also precisely because it's such a common name. So we've already talked about Jesus as the only one who has a relationship with the Father as the Son. We've already talked about Jesus as the one who is the Christ, the only one who's ever been. And you know what? You can call him with a familiar name. This is his Bob right? This is, you don't call me Reverend Thompson or the right Reverend or Dr. Thompson if you're my friend. You just call me Bob, right? You can call him Jesus. You can call him by a very ordinary name. He wants to be close to you. He wants to know you, the one who saves you, who is all of heaven's glory boiled down into one human person who lived on earth and retains the the incarnation is still our flesh and blood in heaven at the Father's right hand. You can just talk to him and call him by a very ordinary name, Jesus. That's how he wants to be known by you. So about this time last uh, yesterday afternoon when I was uh, getting ready for a wedding and for the sermon today, I started thinking about all the songs that have been written about Jesus. So I posted on my Facebook page, what is your favorite song about Jesus? I was going to sing them all for you, but so far I have 53, so I, 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 I put them in order of the year in which they were written, and just started thinking about these songs about Jesus, and I thought, you know, this 830 crowd uh, might be like me, like real contemporary music was the music in the 70s and 80s, right, so... 
Uh, but, you know, th there's contemporary music written then, there's contemporary mu music written now, and there's the great tradition. Some of the, some of the lyrics that we have about Jesus and the ones that we know about go all the way back to Bernard of Clairvaux in the 11th century. And it's like we as believers, when we grasp this idea of who this Jesus is, just love to sing about him. So I'm, I have, the words aren't going to be on the screen. Peter's not going to play the organ. I'm just going to sing a few Jesus songs. And if they're familiar to you, sing them with me. But remember, I'm only going to sing like a line or two. So when I quit, don't keep going, all right? I want to get to the next one. But I just want you to think about some of the ways that we have uh, sung about this name of Jesus and how Christians are just amazed at the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, to quote the song we sang earlier. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. All hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth a royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far thy face to see, and in thy presence rest, fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God and man the Son, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy and crown. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Lynn and I sang this one as a duet at our wedding. Let me come closer to thee, Lord Jesus, oh, closer day by day. Let me lean harder on thee, Lord Jesus, yes, harder all the way. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day, without him I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go, no other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad, he's my friend. Okay, I got to move into the 20th century. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus.
Jesus, there's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, name above all names, beautiful Savior, glorious Lord, Emmanuel, God is with us, blessed Redeemer, living Word. Shine, Jesus, shine, fill this land with the Father's glory. Blaze, Spirit, blaze, set our hearts on fire. What a beautiful name it is, what a beautiful name it is. The name, I can't remember, how does that one go anyway? Y'all know that one? Come up here and sing it, Julie. Come on. Uh, I thought I had this, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is. Nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. Close enough, right? That was my newest one, like, so that doesn't get in my brain as deeply. Last night, we had a wedding here at Corinth, and uh, the groom had written about his bride in advance, she is my death row meal. And I was, I was prepared to quote that. I'm going like, that's a pretty unusual way. I've never heard a bride described exactly like that. And what he meant to say was, she is so amazing that she is like the best, most uh, savory, scrumptious meal I could ever imagine. And so I quoted all the ways that he had uh, talked about his favorite meal. And uh, I was all prepared to do that. And we got in this sanctuary, and the groom looked a little bit white, and like within the first three minutes of the wedding, he was right here laid out on the floor here like I've never had a groom faint. And I'm sure there were multiple factors that contributed to that, but I think the main one was like, I can't believe this woman is marrying me. This is so amazing. And I think like, I would love to be so astounded by Jesus, so amazed that this Jesus who invites us to call him by that very familiar name, is the incomparable one. The one that is just as, as, as connected to the Father as an only child, however you can imagine that. The one who is the Christ, the anointed one. That Jesus is the one who invites me into relationship with him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the wonder of who Jesus is. And thank you for all the ways in which you have inspired these songwriters through the years to take us deep into their heart of worship and love and response and commitment to Jesus. We are so blessed to be his people, and we pause again today to remember the only begotten Son of God, Jesus the Christ, our Savior, our Lord. And we pray that we will be so overwhelmed by him that we get weak at the knees with thinking about how deeply and fully and eternally we are loved by this one who did everything necessary for us to bring us into a relationship with you so that we too could be called the children of God. Thank you for your love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.
So we do have one more song that sounds like it might have fit with last week on the solid rock, but it's got Jesus' name in there too. The solid rock, please stand as we sing together our closing hymn.